Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and gift mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Sue Gordon was until late last summer the principal deputy director for national intelligence, the second highest ranked position in the U.S. intelligence community. A career intelligence officer, Sue has been on our show twice before. I just interviewed Sue for an event at the Michael V. Hayden Center at the Shar School at George Mason University, and not surprisingly, she was as candid as ever. Thanks to the Shar School, we are bringing you, our listeners, that event. We'll be right back with that conversation after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is a bonus episode of Intelligence Matters. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. So this is, this is really special for me. Me too. Um, we started the same year at CIA. We grew up together. Um, we, took, we took classes together, training classes together. Um, she, she was always better in the training class than I was. Um, we played basketball together. Um, and I didn't know when we first played basketball, I had no idea that she was a college basketball player. And she is a badass basketball player, let me tell you. Um, but uh, I've uh, worked with her for a long time. Um, I think the world of her. Um, when she was named the number two in the national security in, 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 in the IC, um, I could not have been prouder. Um, and it's a great opportunity to be up here with you. Thanks. So let's, let's start by talking about the importance of intelligence. 
So we both started our career during the Cold War, yep. and that had a, intelligence had, had, had a certain importance. Um, then we had a decade where we weren't quite sure what was happening, and then 9-11 happens, and there was a significance to that. And now we're in a different world, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's great power conflict, um, rapid changes in technology. Talk about how important intelligence is today um, in specific terms, but also relative to history. Yeah, so, um, well, so thanks, um, General Hayden. Uh, anytime I get to sit in a center that has your name and sit in front of you is a, is a good day for me. Um, and Tom, thank you so much for, for having me here at the Char School. And Mike, <laughs> you know. Uh, so two, <laughs> you know, two bins. Um, historical context. Um, so I think we're in what I'm going to call the third epoch in uh, threat environments. The first one is the Cold War, where um, the threat actors were nation states. Soviet Union was the one that dominated. I know when Michael and I started, I was in an office of 780 people. 779 of them did the Soviet Union, and one guy did China, and he also did the rest of the world. Um, so, but, it, but it was the, the governments had the, there were nation states, governments held the information. We built intelligence systems to go get the information that governments held and specific collection systems. And um, our consumers were pretty much policymakers and war fighters disproportionately. And our analysis was also disproportionately political and military. First one. The Berlin Wall falls down. You said we didn't really kind of wandering around the wilderness, but we were still applying Cold War collection systems to a proliferating world. We still were going after the information that governments held. We were still going after it with the same thing. The problem was we just didn't have the installed base. So we were applying the same methodology. We were the same people trying to produce the same analysis, but we didn't have the same foundation. And so that's why you see those years after the fall of the Berlin Wall until 1999 were still organized much the same as we were in the Cold War. We're now trying to apply those same theories to a very distributed world. And I think we could talk about the successes and failures. 9-11 happens. Um, now non-nation state individuals hold the information. Our consumers are, yes, policymakers and warfighters, but they are allies, non-allies, and state and local. So not only do you have to go get the information in a different place than it was, it was held by individuals, and so you see the rise of cyber because it's their communications that you're trying to find the information. And you're trying to learn how to form alliances differently than the traditional means. Now we're in a third epoch of ubiquitous technology, digital connected, and data abundance, where the world knows everything. We're not having to hunt for information anymore. And so all the threats are to and through information, and so we're in a third change. But we're still dragging the Cold War organizational construct and the 9-11 construct, and we're trying to figure out how to fit this new world. So world change, that's a historical context. One thing that has been constant is that intelligence is about 
colloquially, knowing the truth, seeing beyond the horizon, and allowing leaders to act before events dictate. You agree that's, mm -hmm. that's what we've always done, that's what we're doing today, and I think you could imagine that that is a necessary craft all the way into the future. You can't imagine a future where that craft wouldn't be valuable. Do you agree? And intelligence isn't just about knowing more information. It is about having a tradecraft around being able to deal with fundamentally uncertain information with certainty. It is never opinion. It is always craft around how you see and observe events and inductively draw a, conclusion, draw a generalization rather than having a theory and trying to prove it. And there's nothing different about today from when we started or at any point in the future, except what? The environment in which you're trying to do that. And all the, and who has the information, and how you go after it, and pesky privacy laws, and pesky digital connectedness, and what is truth today, and what the hell is the horizon that you're trying to see beyond, and who are the leaders that are making the decisions that you're trying to inform. And if I look at it today, all of those things have changed, to include the leaders. Would we all agree that, that CEOs of companies are making decisions that are affecting global security? Should intelligence inform them? Right? So I think that's the most interesting thing to me in a world that has just exploded in terms of connectedness. In a world where the answers are known by, by kind of the ethos, you still want that clarity, but how do you go get it when most of your rules were designed physically? So, so the world has changed. Yep, world's changed. And the intelligence community, like every other institution. Same mission. Right? Yep. It's a little slow to adapt. Right. So what but still you, necessary. What do, you think, what do you think the fundamental changes that we need to make as a community so that we are effective in the future? Three things. I'm going to prove I can give a short answer. Um, one, we're going to have to use, figure out how to use unclassified information. So our history is collecting information as we decided to collect it. So it had a heft, and we had confidence in the data because we were essentially curating it. Now we need to use open data, but we need to be able to use it with confidence. So one, you got to use open data. And you got to be able to use open data not as a nice to have, but integrate it with all the others. The second thing is you, we got to get better at doing economic analysis. Um, because a digitally connected world is fundamentally an economically driven world. Uh, and you can see it in so many things happening today where um, alliances are being tested by economic realities. Yes, I want to be partners with the United States, but China is offering me a deep water port. And so being able to understand those things. And we have a president that sees the world more economically than just geopolitically. And there are good reasons why the intelligence community is not as steeped in those things. And others, where's the information held and whether we believe we can go after it. So that's two. We've got to get more economic. And the third thing is I believe we're going to have to write unclassified products. Because the customer base is changing. Because the customer base is changing. 
So my challenge is, is our business isn't secrecy, our business is national security, and if the people who are affecting national security are either the populace, they're being influenced, or the private sector, they're making decisions that affect security. How do we, the national security apparatus, give information to the decision maker? And that is a big change. Right? That's not a casual change. That isn't giving our products to something else because they're very different crafts. And so you can't be casual around it. So those are the three th changes I think we're going to have to affect. And, and you pushed these things when you were deputy. And how far did you get, do you think? Uh, boy, using, using unclassified information, I think, I think we, got, we got a long way there, but the systems just aren't in place for it to be able to be considered in the stream of analysis, and there's so much of it that concurrently you're going to have to have um, some uh, data analytics and processing if you want to go with AI, you can, but you're going to have to do it. And that is hard culturally because of the inherent uncertainty in making analytic judgments. Yeah, I always get, will you allow a, a game? Just so you understand intelligence analysis from an intelligence analyst. Um, raise your hand if you like doing jigsaw puzzles. Awesome, keep them up. Do you like doing jigsaw puzzles if you don't know the picture? Keep them up. Do you like doing jigsaw puzzles if you don't know the picture and you know you only have a quarter of the pieces? <laughs> Do you like doing jigsaw puzzles if you don't know the picture, you only have a quarter of the pieces, and the president wants to know what the picture is in five minutes because he needs to make a consequential decision? So for the people in my class, I did not pay her to say this. <laughs> right? And so intelligence is about how do I construct something around that so that whatever quarter of the pieces I have, I can allow them to be considered legitimately. And so in a world where the world has all this information, I want more to be considered legitimate. We're going to have to use machines to do it. But that is hard when analysts will tell you, well, I just know. Right, or just history, right? And, and so the big conundrum on artificial intelligence is this notion that that's OK. Humans are always going to be in the loop. No, they're not. They can't. Because if they have to be in the loop, they're not going to be able to see all the things. So I think that's one of the big changes is, so yes, include unclassified information. Man, put that into the stream. That's a hard one to do. So some there. You think there's uh, economic, I think we're making good progress on economic. I, th I think we are. Um, I think this president has forced that. Uh, I think using economic pressure and, and trying to provide this president with the kind of intelligence that he wanted to make the kind of decisions he wanted to do has really advanced our craft in that. And on the producing unclassified, I think there's some really good notable examples where we've seen the benefit. The 2016 ICA, which was unclassified, that was telling the people who were affected, American citizens, you're being influenced. Giving the power to someone else is a notable example, but, but that's still hard for us. I also think there's a notable example. Go to the, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency's sure. website, and you will see all sorts of unclassified yeah, analysis out there. It's really cool. And they will actually allow you to do some of the analysis. They will. I mean, just over the past five years, and I give credit to my, my previous boss, is this notion of succeeding in the open, and that is that this is a perfect example of government, a thing that the government connect, collected at great expense could be used openly 
in areas like disaster relief and understanding the Alaskan tundra and so many things, we're taking this historical bolus of data and making it available for scientists uh, to use is really remarkable. Okay, so with this, this large number of national security issues out there, yep. what can't we get wrong? What, 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 what do we absolutely have to get right going forward from a national security perspective, the intelligence community? Uh, I'll go from a national perspective. We need two things going forward. We're going to have to figure out how we trust our communications and how we're able to ascertain what's true. Right? Those are, and so if then the intelligence community is disproportionately expected to be able to operate those, we're going to have to be drivers of those two. But the world has figured out how to use the digital environment in order to advance whether our adversaries or our competitors' interests, they've figured out how to advance their interests in the relatively ungoverned, massively instantaneously zero cost world of data and data manipulation. And, and those two things are linked, on. right? Right, they are. So what we must get right is trust and truth. What intelligence community needs to do is be on the driving side of how you ascertain that without longing for a simpler time and only looking in the historic places for information because the information is being held in many other places than where we historically looked. And you still need intent. So Sue, so you were, I'll switch gears here a little bit, you were the number two in the intelligence community during a very unique time. The presidency of, yeah. of Donald Trump, Yep. right? And I wanna ask you some questions that kind of flow from that. Um, so, so you were asked by the president to be the number two. Yes, um, I was his and appointee. You, you were his appointee, and you knew a lot about him going into that. Mm -hmm. there, were all, there were the never Trumpers. Um, there were the things he said about the intelligence community during the transition. Um, There's a lot of stuff going on. Did you have to think about saying yes, or was it, I'm a soldier, I'm gonna salute? and serve my country. How did it, talk to us about that. Yeah, I don't think I had any hesitance at all, right? And I think that's a little bit, um, intelligence officers have, <laughs> I, I used to talk to a class and say, if you took all the cabinet officials standing around an open field with <laughs> Hunger Games styled, with all the, with all the, <laughs> departments and missions in the middle, everyone would race for intelligence, right? Because there's a, there's a purity in intelligence. All you have to do is pursue the truth as hard as you can. All you have to do is present it as clearly as you can so that good decisions can be made. And, and because you serve the Constitution, uh, as I've told the president, my love of country covers you, you're, you're going to work tirelessly to try and prevent, provide information uh, to the president, regardless of who it is. In my case, I think seven. I don't know how many you serve, but I serve seven presidents. So that's a no-brainer, right? Career intelligence officer. The number two is the career intelligence officer. The number one, the DNI is typically, um, Jim Clapper was an anomaly. 
um, oftentimes a political appointee. Uh, easy, easy call, right? And yeah, you, because you, you're trying to give the best information for the best decisions. Second question is, is um, Dan Coates, who was the DNI. And by the way, I would say that any time, for most people, your president, you, your president asks you to do something, I think it's a pretty, yeah. pretty brazen person who says, yeah, I'd say no. Right? I, I think that's hard. But in intelligence, yeah. it was easy. Um, Dan Coates, DNI. Yes. Number of times, walking in, you said it was four, but a number of times, he spoke up publicly yep. and spoke truth to power. He did. Um, did his job. Absolutely. Is that something that, that he had to consciously think about, this is a moment where I need to speak out, or was it happenstance? No, I think one of the things that, that Dan did, one, Dan's tremendous patriot who answered his nation call several times. And one of the things I think Dan did really well is he understood the ethos of the intelligence community. He embraced what we were, which is kind of relentlessly responsible, you know, uh, he would. He said it. Seek the truth. Speak the truth. And I think he carried that mantra. And so, I think he did it well. I think he didn't try and cross into policy. I think that allowed him to say it. And the three or four times that he spoke publicly, many more times than that, in policy settings, but three or four times publicly was when a statement was made that had one or two characteristics. One is impugning the integrity of the intelligence community. You just can't stand for that. And then the second is, like, we can be wrong till the cows come home, but, but not wrong motivated, wrong headed. Um, and then the second is misstating what, was, what we need to be true, right? So you see the Putin examples, and you see the things around election security, those two things typically I, think, I really do think it was only a handful of times that he made a public statement um, where he just needed to clarify what the intelligence or what the intelligence community said. And he did it pretty non-pejoratively. He just came out and said, corrected the record. And I think what that did was two things. I think f we have kept the intelligence, and I think the current leaders have kept the intelligence community, by and large, with their eyes in the boat. Um, and the second is just established that there are certain conversations that we aren't going to, you know, you aren't going to be able to say about the intelligence community. Yeah. And then the third question is, is your own experience those last couple of weeks, Yeah. right? Um, and, you know, having gone through Benghazi, you know, I know, um, as well as anybody, that it's not fun to be in the public domain with people saying things about you that aren't true, um, taken out of context. Yeah. And I'm just wondering how that was for you, number one. And number two, what did you learn from that? Uh, so just in case you all don't spend your whole life looking at the career of Susan M. Gordon. I don't know why. You, you <laughs> might do something other than that. Um, but the day came in the summer where Dan Coates um, was no longer going to be the DNI. Statute said that the principal deputy would become the acting DNI. And, and that was the path we were on. Uh, and then in a tweet on the day that Dan, uh, uh, Dan's resignation was, was announced, it became clear that there was some question about whether I would be acting DNI. Over the course of two weeks, 
um, it became clear that I wasn't going to be acting DNI. Um, and so we had a problem because statute said I must be. And the president clearly no longer preferred that I step into that role. Uh, two things, personal. One, if you're the third child of a naval officer and the man that appointed you decides that he doesn't want you to continue, one of the things you do is a cheery eye eye and you give room for something to happen. The second for me, it was I didn't want to be another source of rub between the president and the intelligence community. All right, it was a tough enough relationship that, you know, imagine this, I'm gonna fight it out and say, no, 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 you must have her. Well, uh, that would become another thing. And, and what was most important was the president got intelligence. So on a personal level, mm. that, was, that was a relatively easy call um, for that reason. On the other half of the person level, notwithstanding those discussions privately, I then became, um, and that event became uh, a hammer for other, I mean a nail for other people's hammer. Right where that event, depending on which side of the political spectrum you came on, I was either evil incarnate deep state, who clearly must be gotten rid of, or, right? A great oh, intelligence professional. A great intelligence professional who had stood up and, and given truth to power. And, and the problem was, I didn't want to be anyone's agenda. And so for me, the most difficult time was to somehow keep my own bearing, be true to what I think the craft of intelligence is, which is to keep intelligence in the president's relationship and allow that to happen, while allowing people who have no idea who I am to say things about me that were completely ridiculous. And so there's some really interesting moments when you try and, when you're in extremists and you try and figure out who you are. And I would just tell you that you, when you find yourself in those circumstances, you've got to just navigate it for yourself because a lot of people will tell you what to do. You just have to do it. So to me, it was one, I knew how to handle the moment even though there's still an uncertainty that I have of why that was in anyone's best interest. The other piece was then I became news and used for whatever side of, of the argument you wanted to be on. And, and for an intelligence officer that pretty much spends their life being a humble ten bender, that was odd. Yeah. It was odd, it was odd personally. Yeah. So, so when you gave the president your resignation letter, yep. you also gave him a personal note. I did. I'm not asking you what it said, but why okay. did you do that? Well, they released it, so I mean, the, yeah. the White House released the note. Um, yeah, so this is so great. Um, one, I will just tell you all, um, anything you write and anything you said is written and said, so just be careful about what you put down. Um, so my resignation letter, uh, I wrote, because um, I had three messages I wanted to send. Number one is, I was honored to serve. You know, I, I, when I did my confirmation hearing, my opening line was, I love America. I love being part of the process that our founders envisioned, and I was honored to serve uh, the President of the United States and, that, and lead the intelligence community. So I wanted to send that message. The second was, I wanted to say, I am letting you have your team. Because that's to me what it felt like for some reason he had decided he wanted a different team. But the real message in that resignation letter was for the intelligence community that said, don't worry. Because if you think about it, Dan's 
a political appointee, these guys come and go. My worry was the intelligence community would see a careerist go and think, oh my God, did we not get the memo? And what I wanted to do in that note was to say, don't worry, one, Mr. President, the intelligence community still got you. And the other was for the intelligence to say, is don't worry, you ha you're all you need to be. You didn't need me to be here in order to do it. So that was that. The handwritten note, so I was, it was so funny. I had decided it was time that I needed to deliver that letter. I was down in my car to go down to the White House. And I remember thinking, oh my God, what if I can't get in to see the president? Mm. That would be rude if I just dropped off a, a type, type letter. I should dash off a handwritten note um, just to not be rude. Like I, my parents raised me upright, don't, don't be rude. And so in fact, I didn't get in. And so the, the note to the president was just really intended to say, you don't have to do this, right? If you, if you decide that for some reason you don't want to, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not resigning because I'm trying to get away. I'm giving you room and being respectful. If that's not what you want, don't do this. So, so these two iconic things were actually notes to both communicate to the president and as much to communicate hope and confidence to the intelligence community because I didn't want them to think that just because I was moving on that the relationship was broken. So how do you think, Sue, how do you think the intelligence community is doing standing up to the political pressure? I think it's hard. I think on the one hand, you can't judge anything by not seeing the intelligence community in the press um, because the intelligence community does its job not in the press, right? I, I've got no data that there aren't the exact same assessments being made, briefings being given, involvement in the policy, apparatus being owned. So on the, so on the one hand, I don't think you can overjudge because you don't see the same toing and froing. You're not, you were never going to see, uh, I think one of the great things about the DNI's position, and especially the DNI carried out by Jim Clapper and Dan Coates, it was trying to be that overwatch so that it took the heat so the intelligence community could do the work. And so I don't think it's surprising mm -hmm. that you don't see Gina out there being really vocal because that isn't where it is. Um, but I do think that, that what we've learned over time is national security issues spill out into the public. They affect the public. And I don't know the time, that I can't think of a time that the, the leadership hasn't spoken up, but I think they're going to have to be ready to speak up because every once in a while, you have to correct the record. You always have, and I suspect you always mm. will. So, so I'm wondering. I think it's. I think this is. I think it's harder. It's so much more partisan. Yeah. And I've again. I, I say this all the time. It's not as different serving the president because every president is the same because they're different, and every president wishes intelligence could say things that it can't, and every president is vexed by intelligence because we steal their decision space. But, but the environment in which that is playing out, both administration that feels under siege 
and hyperpartisanship on both sides, every action that the intelligence community thinks is just data actually turns into agenda. And I don't think you can wish that away. I think you have to be ready to also make sure that you're clear about what you're saying. And then let me just ask you to put two recent data points sure. into that context. Um, one is the reluctance, the apparent reluctance of the intelligence community to do an open hearing for the worldwide threat yeah. testimony, right? That's one. And the other is the DNI and the director of CIA standing at the State of the Union and cheering during what were absolutely clearly political moments. Uh, let's do, see. Do those two things trouble so you? So what was the first one? Oh. Worldwide threat testimony. No, I think the intelligence community hated open hearings, just in general, always has. Um, because it's such a bad forum to be able to naturally articulate threat because, because the real grit and the foundation for much of its um, assessment it lies in classified information. And so it's an awkward forum to be compelling and complete, particularly when, when the environment one is of challenging those conclusions, right? Because it's just, it's just a difficult, it's a difficult setting because you can state things openly, but when you're challenged, it is hard to defend openly. And so it's just a, it's just a tough thing. So the intelligence community not wanting open hearings. And again, I haven't been involved in the conversation, right. but that doesn't surprise me because it's just a really tough one. And especially as partisan politics kicks up, the disadvantage and the chance for misspeak or the chance for misunderstanding just increases exponentially. So I wouldn't draw, I wouldn't put too much on that. Although I would say, back to where I started, I do believe that the American people are involved in national security and you, ha and you have to be able to have a conversation with the American people in 2020 and beyond. And so however that's gonna happen, I think, I think intelligence is gonna have to figure out how to do that well, whether that's open hearings or not. On the State of the Union, so just remember, it has not always been thus that intelligence officers have been also been cabinet members, right? Not in every administration that's true. And so... Bill Clinton it was, George Bush it wasn't, wasn't Obama right. it wasn't. Right, and so, and so I would say that of cabinet officials and of people trained in speaking publicly about their craft, intelligence officers are still babes in the woods, right? We're just, we're just kind of, uh, I, will, I will call us rubes in that regard, where we're just, it's just not, you know, if you're, an, if you're an Air Force officer, you are trained, if you're in the military, you are trained in terms of being able to have open conversations about yourself. That is just not where we've been. And so I think you still see us growing as intelligence officers, learning how to behave as part of the policy and political community. So if that was a misstep in terms of standing up and not, I put it more in the category of being caught in a situation that's like, oh, I, I, don't, I don't know how to play this. Do I stand up for the Tuskegee Airmen? Do I not? And so having had no conversations about it, and my want is to always find the least sinister 
conclusion, I would just say it's just another example of growth of intelligence into the public arena and having to navigate openly the world of policy, which historically you're able to put your stuff out there and cut them yeah. back gently away. And then, and then one more question about this environment. Um, and you and I have talked about this. Yes. Which We've is, talked about almost Which something. is, you know, um, a lot of formers, including two right here, yeah. right? Um, writing, speaking, yeah. thinking we're helping you, uh -huh. right? The DNI and the intelligence community. Yeah. Um, how did you see that? Was it helpful or wasn't it? You can be honest. We've talked about well, this before. Well, I have. So one, uh, private citizens get to get to say what they want to say. So, period. Um, two, we have we in the intelligence community have long benefited from surrogates explaining intelligence which is a kind of particular thing um, to the American people. We were talking about the Snowden example. Oh, yeah, the Snowden example is a great example where when, when Snowden happened and the press was just merciless, basically making it seem like he was the hero exposing massive misuse of the Constitution, which is nothing further from the, the truth. The intelligence community didn't know how to speak about it, so we, like Benghazi, thought the answer was, don't give fire oxygen, just say nothing. And so what that meant was only one point of view was going out there. And so Mike Hayden jumped in, and if you go back in time, he basically showed our way out of that, refuted some of the most hyperbolic statements that overextrapolated what we were doing, and, and brought it back to reality, and so we have long benefited from, particularly as more intelligence issues became open, benefited from it. That said, uh, in this environment that is hyper-political, that same intention to both protect our community, right, because it was hurtful, some of the things were being said, and we weren't fending off every challenge. You were trying to both protect the women and men of the intelligence community and talk about uh, realities of geopolitics as you saw it. But in this hyper-political environment, one of the effects that I saw was that it, it exacerbated a belief that the intelligence community was political and had a political view. And so what weirdly happened is it imputed, not to you, but imputed to us that we were all partisan that if these recent leaders had a view, that it must be that that was a pervasive view of the intelligence community, which we would all tell you we all have views, but they don't affect the work we do. And the second thing it did was it took away people we could turn to to have a voice when we needed a voice. Fascinating. And three, I think it's part of the reason why I don't have a job, is because I had worked with all these men supported them. And so that must mean that I am there. So, you know, I don't know how that nets out, but I do think that that's, you know, I don't think you could do anything about it. Well, the one thing I would say to my former colleagues is 
thank you for defending our integrity. And you didn't have to worry about our ability to do our job. We knew how to do our job. One more question before we go to uh, questions from the audience, and that is you have a lot of, so you have a lot of students here who are thinking about careers in intelligence. Yeah, you what should do it. What advice would you give them? <laughs> no. Uh, one, you should do it. Yeah, I was, uh, no, seriously, I was asked, I was asked in another fora, because I think there's just this kind of pervasive, oh my God, it's all such a mess. It's, you know, what are we going to do? You're the people that are going to find our way forward. Being able to see with clarity what's happening and then figure out how to present that in a way that's useful is more necessary now than ever and more elusive now than ever. There is, there is less installed base. There is more to be figured out. There are more pieces of data that can help you. And there are more domains in which national security is going to, is going to be affected that if you want to have impact going forward, this is exactly the right time to go into it. I, I think this is an incredibly exciting time, if you're as optimistic a human as I am, and two, to step into this craft because it's so necessary and so elusive. Like, don't we all want to be pioneers at some level? Like, it's no fun if ever all the answers are already known. This is a time where very few answers are known. You could be it. So <laughs> leap into the fray. The second one is, this is a technical world. Everyone, in 2020 and beyond, everyone must be technically competent. You know, this digital environment demands that you understand how technology works. I'm not saying everyone has to be a technologist, but you must not leave that to somebody else. That has to be part of economics and politics and government and international law. I mean, just looking alone at data rights and privacy, if you don't understand how it is technically instantiated, I don't know how you're going to understand the way through it from a legal or policy construct. And yet we must, because privacy has to be protected, but we have to be able to communicate. And so both those things, one, do it because we need it, and it's interesting as all get out. And two, make sure you are not technically averse. And if you are a technologist in this room, for goodness sake, get yourself into social sciences classes because things, the same national and international interests are being affected technically. So it's just not what the technology could do, but how it is going to be used that's going to make a difference. That was Sue Gordon. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next Wednesday for another regular episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis. Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. And a special thanks to Levi Magyar for his on-site audio production at this event. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod. And follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Mm-hmm. 
It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.